What do a former Liberal Party cabinet minister and the rave scene have in common? That music choice is Tom's. I just want (laughs) you all to know that. I didn't pick that song. And we're going to answer that question, though, in just a moment. Yeah, you may have guessed it from the title of this podcast, but don't look if you haven't already. No, welcome to The Briefing. It is Friday, January 12th. I'm Jan Fran. I'm Tom Tilly. Let's find out what's making news today. More Black Lives Matter protests are scheduled for the weekend, but Australia's top doctors are essentially begging people not to go. So Australia's Chief Health Officer, Brendan Murphy, says that events like this pose a very significant risk of spreading the coronavirus. You don't know who you're contacting, and so we feel that people should be discouraged from attending such events. We understand the passion that people have for wanting to protest, but we think it's a really bad idea at the moment. So that advice comes after the news that a man in his 30s tested positive after he and tens of thousands of others went to the rally in Melbourne over the weekend. Uh, They don't think he caught the coronavirus at the rally, but say that he might have been infectious, which is a real worry. Yeah. And then look, there's a couple of other protests um, for other causes also scheduled. But yesterday, the Supreme Court blocked a refugee protest, which was meant to be held in Sydney um, on Saturday afternoon. Now, the Black Lives Matter protest is planned for town hall tonight. But New South Wales Assistant Police Commissioner Mick Willing says that anyone who goes to either of those protests is going to face um, some pretty serious consequences. That may well lead to arrests, um, if possible. We do not want to see that. In relation to the, uh, the current health order, um, we'll be enforcing it by um, issuing infringements where necessary, uh, obviously after providing sufficient warnings, but we will be enforcing it. Sounds like that will probably um, scare a lot of people off. I wonder if it'll scare them off more than the fact that the guy had the coronavirus at the Melbourne protest. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, how that story develops and how they intend to do contact tracing, given that 10,000 people were at the rally in Melbourne. But the other thing that's probably putting people off is the fact that the PM was out yesterday saying that protesters should be charged uh, if they showed up. So that's a pretty serious um, thing to say. Well, they might be able to finally put the the tracing app to the test. And let's hope it works. And the Prime Minister is copying it for claiming that slavery never existed in Australia. So he made the comment when he was asked whether he agrees with the global push to pull down statues of colonialists, including Captain James Cook. And obviously there are plenty of statues of him here in Australia. Australia, when it was um, founded um, as, a, as a settlement, as New South Wales, was, was on the basis that there'd be no slavery. And we, while, while slave ships continued to travel around the world, when Australia was established, yeah, sure, it was a pretty brutal settlement, but there was no slavery. That was the Prime Minister on Sydney radio station 2GB yesterday. Uh, in response to that, the Labor Senator, Pat Dodson, uh, an Indigenous man from the Kimberley, reckons the Prime Minister needs to brush up on his history. I grew up seeing people carrying water on the oaks and uh, being slaved with, without pay. So, you know, prior to 67, uh, the world was a bit different to what Mr Morrison might recall. And also in Parliament yesterday, the robo-debt apology the government had tried not to give. Uh, two weeks ago, the government announced they'd be paying back over $700 million of Centrelink debts raised by its automatic income averaging system. Yeah, and even though they admitted that, they refused to apologise, saying that it could impact the class action. 
By yesterday, though, they had changed their mind and Scott Morrison said this. I would apologise to any hurt or harm in, in the way that the government has dealt with that issue and to anyone else who's finding themselves in those situations. So there it is. There's the apology. Um, that class action is still underway and basically the, the question from that will be, will the government have to pay damages on top of the debts they're going to have to repay? And it seemed like the government felt like apologising might impact that case and mean they might have to pay more money back. Yeah, well, they're already repaying $721 million. Yeah, but the, the lead lawyer on, on the class action came out and said, we won't use that in the case if you apologise. Right. And I wonder if that was the reason they eventually did. The ABC is doing an audit of its past and present shows. Uh, this is after five of comedian Chris Lilly's shows were pulled from Netflix because of blackface and so-called yellowface. Yeah, the Australian National Broadcaster commissioned all five of the shows that were dumped by Netflix. Um, In a statement, the ABC says, we are reviewing our content to ensure it meets current community standards and reflects our editorial policies on harm and offence. Yeah, now the first of the blocked shows was made in 2005, which is essentially 15 years ago. Uh, That was We Can Be Heroes, which featured Lily playing an Asian character uh, called Ricky Wong. They also pulled Summer Heights High, Angry Boys, uh, Jamae and Jonah from Tonga as well. Yeah, it's an interesting step. I wonder what the ABC is going to do. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting how far back it's going to have to look because the ABC was founded in 1932. I can't imagine that they'll be going all the way back through their archives to determine what's problematic and what's not. Where do you draw the line? Yeah, exactly. That's the question. Well, Disney's done an interesting thing where they've added a disclaimer Mm. Uh, on some of their shows, Peter Pan, Dumbo, on the streaming services just to say, hey, we know this is a bit on the nose. Maybe that's a way around it. And have you ever shared something because of the headline without actually reading it? Me never. No, have you? (laughs) Probably. Twitter's testing a new feature that's asked us to read articles before we retweet links to them. Yeah, in a statement it says that this is effectively to help promote informed discussion. So when you retweet an article that you haven't opened on Twitter, what it does is it asks you if you'd like to open it first, which I think is great. It's just a little gentle nod that says that, you know, I'm just asking a question. Have you actually read this? No, I don't want to. (laughs) Well, then don't share it. The context of this is that social media sites, um, particularly Twitter, more so than, than Facebook, I would say, are working hard to stop misinformation going as far as hiding or fact-checking some of the president's tweets. Mm. I, I'm, I'm sort of a fan of this because I post quite a lot of stuff, you know, videos I make or things that I write on Facebook, and some of the comments that I get, clearly mm. the material has not been read, and I feel like a really strict high school teacher just getting in the comments section going, have you actually read this? I get that that's annoying, but it's also annoying being told what to do. We don't have to do it. It's just a suggestion. Suggestions can be annoying too. At the start of the show, we asked you what a former Liberal Party cabinet minister and the rave scene have in common. Oh, God, I love this song. Um, This was just an excuse to play a bit of Calvin Harris. (laughs) The answer is, and you may have gathered this from the show notes of this podcast... What ties them together is an appreciation of the drug MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy. Otherwise known as ecstasy, indeed. Now, bear with me, this will all make sense in a second. 
Experts we know are warning that coronavirus will have a massive impact on our mental health. And former Liberal Minister Andrew Robb thinks that psychedelic drugs might just be a solution. Now, these drugs include MDMA, which is, yes, the key ingredient in the party drug ecstasy, and also psilocybin, which is the ingredient that is found in magic mushrooms. Both of these medicines, MDMA for PTSD, addiction and other conditions, and psilocybin for depression, anxiety, end-of-life addiction and other conditions, have now been trialled in over 119 current and recent trials. So there's a real renaissance in this area because there is such a lack of treatment options and the suffering is truly unbearable. So that's Tanya de Jong, the Deputy Chair of Mind Medicine Australia, which is an organisation advocating for change in this space. And on their board are some very straight characters, senior accountants, an investment banker, an admiral of defence, and more recently, former Liberal Cabinet Minister Andrew Robb. Yeah, now Andrew Robb was Trade Minister until he retired four years ago. So you might have seen him in a suit. Well, you definitely would have seen him in a suit and tie, maybe talking about a trade deal that he'd negotiated. He's also known for being very public about his battle with depression. Andrew, Rob, thank you for joining us on The Briefing. Um, A lot of people would see you as a a former trade minister, a very senior member of Cabinet, as a a real straighty 180. So they might be surprised to hear that you're getting on board advocating for the use of MDMA or magic mushrooms. Why have you swung behind this cause? First and foremost, I've always been driven by outcomes. And what we're seeing with um, psychedelic-assisted medicine in trials around the world is just unbelievable. And it's tackling mental health problems in in a very effective way. And the more I looked into it, the more I could see that um, this was front and centre technology in the 50s and 60s. It got banned for political reasons. Uh, We've had 50 lost years uh, because it was banned. And now we're starting to see in the right environment, it's highly effective to deal with mental health issues. So, Andrew, would it be crucial that the drug is taken in combination with a psychotherapy session? It's absolutely essential. I think it can only be used effectively if we have the regulation, which ensures that you've got a medically controlled environment. It, it's But is it, look, is, it, it's is, not, it, is it not just about the having it in a controlled way? Is it also about the conversation you would have with a psychologist when you're in that that state created by the drug. That's absolutely right. The environment, it's not, it's the, there's, there's music played. There's a, a conversation you have before or several conversations you have before you have the treatment where the therapist is able to understand the nature of your problem, your expectations of, you know, the session, all of these things before you go into the session and then is with you through the session. And then after the session, again, looks to integrate what was discovered by yourself during that session. It's um, it, it really is an important, innovative, available technology, which we're just not making use of. And it needs to be legalised. We're seeing, for instance, you know, at the moment, remission rates for people experiencing common mental illnesses using the standard treatments, antidepressants and psychotherapy, it's about 35% effectiveness. So there's 65% of people you know, end up with, with no beneficial result. Now, what we're seeing with some of these uh, psychedelic-assisted 
the psychotherapies in the trials, clinical trials in the US and the UK, what we've seen is remission rates. This is not just improvements. This is people with remission rates of 60 to 80 percent uh, in these trials that have been conducted. Now, for people with uh, uh, PSDD with you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, very difficult with the current technologies to might get a bit of relief, but very difficult to get them to a remission. Now we're seeing after two or three sessions in these trials around the world, complete remission. So you're not on drugs for the, for the rest of your life. You go through two or three sessions and the the problem, the mental problem is addressed. I mean, Andrew, you've been very open with your battle with depression. Um, I'm curious, is that what led you to look into psychedelic-assisted treatments? Um, it is. Um, you know, I, I'd had a long-standing problem uh, about 10 years ago. Um, I sought to confront it, find out, just, you know, look, look for medication that might assist me. It took me six months to find the right medication. Uh, it was trial and error. They know very little about what's going on in the brain, to be honest. Um, but I did find a medication. So I was uh, I was receptive to, fortunately, to an antidepressant. And I had very nine, nine and a half years of outstanding good health, mm. mental good health, and did lots of things. Uh, about six months ago, though, um, it stopped. And I asked the psychiatrist, you know, how can you have nine and a half years of, of effectiveness? And then it stops. And he said... We don't know. It happens and we don't know. Uh, so I've been back on the treadmill of trying to find a solution again in, in an antidepressant that will, you know, work for me. Mm. And in that process, I started, I got introduced to the the, the psychedelics. And of course, it's not, it's illegal in Australia, but I got introduced to the effectiveness and I was asked to go on the board of the charity that's looking to encourage governments around Australia to uh, make this therapy legal in medically controlled environments. Mm. And um, so that's where I've developed the interest. And, um, you know, if I've got any chance of bringing attention to it, I'm very happy to do that. So it's up to you how you, you answer this question, um, Andrew, but I feel like we need to ask it. Have you, have you tried psilocybin or MDMA? No, it's, it's illegal here, but, um, you know, I've, uh, but we're looking, there is sort of, uh, I understand the centres around Australia where it may be possible to get this, but we've got, a, this thing is that we, we're looking to have it regulated and controlled. Um, that, that requires, you know, government approval, government controlled regulations and uh, becoming just another standard part of the, the medical process. Have you spoken to Greg Hunt, the health minister, about it? We've introduced the issue uh, with Greg Hunt, yes, because look... Uh, What's his reaction? Yeah, what did he say? He was very interested. He said it was one of the best briefing sessions he'd had during his time as minister. When was that? Well, it was not so long ago because, you know, we've made a big effort now because various charity, frontline charities, which are suggesting that the effects of the current pandemic on mental illness could be up to seven times worse than the spike in mental illnesses from the recent bushfire it should be made available and you know we have to go through a process with the likes of greg hunt and, and his colleagues at a state level and get get them confident and conscious of the medical benefits of, of these psychedelics so that um you know we can see then um 
these things being used in Australia and assisting with the, the mm. growing mental health problems. So that was Andrew Robb saying there that he hasn't tried those illegal drugs. Let's go to someone who has. Jesse Noakes from Perth joins us. Jesse, what was your experience? Um, so taking psychedelic drugs is not something a few years ago I would have ever thought I'd find myself doing, but I found I'd reached a total dead end. Um, about four years ago, I was in my late 20s. I'd been depressed for most of them, um, and everything I'd tried up until that point hadn't worked. Years of therapy, a bunch of antidepressant medications, and I came upon the idea of taking psychedelic drugs with a therapist and thought, well, shit, it's got to be worth a shot. Um, so I ended up in New York, actually. I couldn't find anyone to do it with safely here in Australia. So after a few months of research, I found someone in the States to work with. And about 90 minutes into that first session in New York in August 2016, I opened my eyes, took off the eye mask I'd been wearing, sat up and found myself in a transformed world, really, for the first time in a very long time. I felt connected to myself and to the bloke I was with um, and for the next few hours. I just found access and insight into kind of parts of myself I hadn't seen for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that session is like? Can you sort of set a little bit of a scene as to what it looks like and sounds like and, and what you actually do in a session like that? Yeah, for sure. And I should clarify that I've never done psychedelic therapy in a clinical clinical setting. So what I have done is do it with therapists underground. So it may be somewhat different to what you'd find in a research trial. Mm. Um, but for me, it involves lying down often on a couch with an eye mask on and either headphones playing ambient music or often I've been lucky enough to have a therapist actually sort of performing a live sound meditation there and then. Um, it tends to go for six or seven hours. Um, I've used both MDMA and psilocybin from Magic Mushrooms, um, and the experience for me at least has been relatively similar with both. Um, I find myself moved into these sort of reveries, you might call them, or daydreams. Some people would say hallucinations, but it's not quite as strong as that for me. It's more just like deeper levels of insight and emotional connection to events in my past, to family dynamics, to psychological issues that I've been grappling with, and increasingly um, sort of external issues to do with my work and creative projects that I've been grappling with as well. And so that goes for several hours. I have the therapist there to discuss things with or, you know, sound off with as required. Um, and yeah, I've found it generally to be a very, very positive and often, as I said, quite transformative experience. The question here really is, are you just getting high, which is often also a very short-term thing. It doesn't have a lasting effect and, and can actually send you the other direction a day or two later. Or is this something you can just do a few times and have a lasting impact? Um, I think the question of whether it lasts once you come down is a really good question. Um, in my experience, it has. It's not as though it's a miracle cure or a quick fix. But what I've found is that fundamentally, psychedelic therapy taught me to trust myself. So those periods of increased connection and clarity, which in my case were the first I'd had for many years, they sort of turn the lights on. And once the lights have been turned on, even if they go off again a few hours later, you suddenly know where you are and you need you know what you need to do. Jesse, I'm just curious as to how much this costs because you, you mentioned earlier being in a therapy session for six hours. 
I mean, if you get a therapist for one hour, it can be quite expensive, <laughs> let alone six hours. How much does this set you back exactly? Uh, it's a sliding scale in my experience. So because this is off the books, therapists are um, you know, at liberty to charge what they want. In some cases, that can mean up to 1500 maybe even $2,000 for a one-day oh. session. Wow. Um, okay. As you say, it's an all-day all experience. There's kind of there's lots of follow-up and preparation involved as well. So economically, that makes sense. But there are many therapists at the same time who recognise that they're dealing with very vulnerable, desperate people and that people shouldn't be shut out of this still experimental treatment simply because they can't, you know, muster the resources. Right, it, okay. Um, it, it can vary, yeah. But I think that's a really... Um, important question going forward as we move towards a regulated future for this treatment is how do you make sure that the people who need it most can actually get access to it. That was Jesse Noakes there. Um, he mentioned there that there was music as part of his therapy. Andrew Robb also mentioned that, Jan. Mm. I wonder if they were talking about this tune. What is your obsession with playing them? They definitely were talking about that tune. They were talking about Calvin My Harris. Mind went I'm not alone. <laughs> My mind went straight to Barry White music oh, playing wow. in the BG. I don't know. Maybe I've got that wrong entirely. Let's get it on. <laughs> Is that what you were thinking? Something like that. Just a little less painful <laughs> to listen to, though. Does. Look, I mean, it's 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 quite a serious thing. And, and throughout this whole story, I think what's been clear for me is that this is a very different setting to taking it in a party setting. So, you know... Don't go out there and try ecstasy and blame it on us because it's that's not what we're advocating that you do. It will be interesting to see how the health minister and the politicians respond to this debate and the trial results as they keep coming in. Totally. All right, that's it for the briefing this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on Monday's podcast. Bye-bye. A Podcast One production.